Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, March 18th, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with Chris. Hey Dad, spring is in the air. It's sunny, the birds are chirping. Mm -hmm. We have, like, actual evenings again, our evenings are back. That's great. It's been nice. It is nice to not see the sunset at 4 p.m. <laughs> By the time we're done recording, it's dark out. No more. No more. At least not till September. So we have a lot of news this week, and we had to work quite hard to find positive news. <laughs> yeah. A little peek behind the scenes. We were like, geez, this is all bad. Yeah. Even the good news was sort of bad, too, or at least disruptive, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm feeling good about more and more people in the U.S. government in the halls of power kind of seem to get it. I watched a a hearing uh, yesterday, and I think overall, with the exception of kind of an embarrassing performance by Senator Warren, overall, it was pretty positive for crypto. The chief financial guy from the Ukrainian government was zoomed in, and he had nothing but good things to say about crypto to the members. And, you know, just to have that individual at this point in time with what's all going on right now to tell this uh, Senate panel how incredible crypto had been for the Ukrainian people, I think really landed pretty powerfully on them. And he's joined by the Treasury Department because the Treasury Department is emphasizing that they don't see risks to crypto in terms of sanctions evasion or anything. Yeah. 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 In fact, they said it's very little illicit activity. That's a report from the Treasury Department. We'll have a link in the notes because that's that's huge. There was also uh, your favorite uh, chain analysis companies at the hearing. Disclosure, not my favorite. No, I say that ironically. But they did a good job of making the case that they can track criminals much easier with public ledgers than they can with cash. And they also made the point over and over again that the kind of liquidity that is in the entire crypto market, but specifically in some of these pools where you might try to exchange your coins, it's very limited. It's, you know, like some of the biggest pools are maybe 30 million in a day you could do maybe. That's not the kind of money that some of these uh, um, criminals are looking to move, right? They're looking to move billions and billions and billions of dollars. So they really made the case that just the liquidity of the crypto market doesn't really enable oligarchs and other uh, bad actors to avoid sanctions. There's just not enough money there yet. But also then you combine that with the on-chain analysis and they have more success tracking people that use crypto than they do people who use cash. I hope that it doesn't sound like we are celebrating compliance with KYC and anti-money laundering policy. Or Celebrating avoiding sanctions either, really. (laughs) Neither one. (laughs) Right. We're not celebrating any of these things. What we're trying to bring to light is the reality of the facts. And so we can interpret these facts different ways. And so how I would interpret this data is I would say crypto, which is, in my view, a proxy for Bitcoin, is very young. And so it's not surprising that it's not a large marketplace yet. And that's good because it means you can get some if you want. Yeah. You know, more, I think I see a lot of parallels to when normals around me started adopting email. At first, it was just the geeks that got the value of email, the instant exchange of messages, and to be able to put information and send it around the world. And then it was certain industries, like it 
email took off really early in Hollywood and other places where they were collaborating around the world. And then you started to see businesses adopt it. And it just started to become just obvious the value of email to be able to send information over a communications channel in a standard way. And that fundamentally altered the access to information, just like the print press did, just like the Internet has itself. Information has been democratized, like governments can try to suppress it, but inevitably that information becomes available. That's what's happening to money right now. And it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's almost a force of nature thing. And an interesting parallel is that I think the postmaster general in the 90s testified before Congress, and he was actually saying the energy consumption of email is out of control because just to send one letter, you have to run this whole computer. It's using all this power. And of course, what he's missing is that, sure, in the beginning, we build the system that sends email and not that many people are using it. But once we build that infrastructure and millions of people start using it, suddenly that one computer is servicing millions and millions of people. And Bitcoin scales the same way. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happened with email. It is funny. You're right. I forgot about the energy argument. Oh, we just kind of really do just end up in these cycles with new technology. And on the subject of the Treasury and Chainalysis talking about how there's not a lot of illicit activity in Bitcoin, I think that what's driving that conclusion is that, frankly, there's just not a lot of illicit activity. There's all this fear-mongering about people doing bad things all the time, and we need you know, some authority to protect us from them. But at the end of the day, most people are... I think pretty okay and not doing anything too evil. And so crypto markets are still largely pretty unregulated compared to traditional financial markets. And what do they show us? Left to their own devices, these markets don't seem to be doing anything bad. I remember when it was almost a foregone conclusion that Silk Road made up a large percentage of all Bitcoin transactions. And I remember the discussion back then was like, oh, it's a crypt, it's just enabling, you know, cybercrime. But it, it was to so many of us, I'm not unique, it was a lot of us, but I was one of them. It seemed so obvious that ultimately, if Bitcoin is to be successful, the average day to day usage of Bitcoin by people who maybe are using it as a store of value or people in El Salvador who were unbanked and now are using it to pay a $30 power bill. Um, that's a pretty big range. And that range means there's millions and millions of use cases. And it's going to just outstrip the volume of what people who might be dumb enough to use Bitcoin for if for crime on a public ledger. It's, like that is going to be just minuscule. It already is probably based on Mike Morell's stats, about 0.0 something percent, somewhere in the 0.102%. And that's not my number. That's Mike Morell, who is. Uh, former director of the CIA and longtime lifetime hater of uh, liberty. So <laughs> if he can't find illicit activity, I don't know who could. One thing that occurs to me is that the Silk Road as the first use case for Bitcoin, the first sort of popular market, is quite similar to Amazon first shipping books. Drug markets were something that really benefited from the ability to send money trustlessly with no third parties through a communication system. And 
the Silk Road was so popular because it really improved on the drug purchasing experience. The best thing about it was that you could review the seller. So sellers had ratings just like Amazon. You had star ratings and reviews, and so people had track records to keep up. And also the purchaser had a review and a rating system, sort of similar to eBay does, but more akin to how Amazon displays it and it works and how it affects the reputation on the market. I'd love to see that system imply, you know, implemented in even Amazon today when it comes to third party. I guess they try, but I just don't trust it. But it was great back then because you had to... You had to be a purchaser and you had to be a seller. You had to have money. There was an escrow system that verified transactions were complete. The whole thing just really worked smoothly. It was very impressive. And drug transactions in the real world have a lot of friction and risk. And so the Silk Road, I've heard it described as a harm reduction tool. And frankly, the rest of society is following the Silk Road Hmm. five or eight years later because most states are legalizing marijuana. You can, I think there are even startups that are trying to sell marijuana online, just like the Silk Road, except they have a, a license that says they're allowed to do it now. Yeah, you know, and Silk Road sold more than just drugs. It gets, it gets a bad rap. It allowed for legal and illegal things to be exchanged. That's, <laughs> that's basically the gist of it. Whatever you wanted, of course. What we ended up focusing on in the end was all the illegal things. That's what got Ross in trouble and so many others. But (laughs) yeah. Right. And I've actually, I've poked around on the dark web. It was because I was experimenting with Kuwanics, if you have ever heard of that. Is this like some sort of martial arts? Right. It's uh, it's what (laughs) Neo uses in the Matrix. (laughs) Kuwanics was this privacy solution and it was two virtual machines a Tor gateway, and then another virtual machine that ran a Tor browser. I don't know if it's still around, but it's it's a pretty secure way to access the dark web, I think, because no data on your machine is really going to leak into the virtual machine, so it's very sandboxed. And so I was playing around, and of course the dark web is just Tor sites. And we mentioned Tor last episode. It's basically a kind of a secure communications layer to the internet that the U.S. government sponsored because it's actually very useful for the State Department to be able to use Tor to connect foreign embassies back to the U.S. home base. Yeah, or to enable um, dissidents in repressive regimes that you know need access to the Internet after they shut things down. And like, when do we ever see that happening, right? There's all sorts of benefits, if you think about it, if for democracy. Not necessarily benefits for other, other styles of government. Right. Privacy and promoting privacy was a sort of a value of, I think, the U.S. Foreign Service and State Department for many years, because the assumption, I think, was that if we push other countries to allow more private communication, this supports grassroots movements and open societies. And if we embrace open societies, then we win. But if you're a dictator or an oligarch or whatever, then you lose. Of course, this ideal wasn't really followed most of the time. And frankly, it was mainly not followed when the U.S. had to deal with energy producers. Mm, Yeah. So we mentioned the petrodollar system and how in 1971, the Bretton Woods U.S. dollar gold system failed when Richard Nixon closed the gold window. And that brought us to our current monetary system, which is, you might call it Bretton Woods II. 
because it's very similar to Bretton Woods. Every fiat system in the world is exchangeable for dollars, except dollars are no longer officially exchangeable for gold. Right. You have to buy gold in an open commodity market now. So would it be fair to say that the dollar is backed by the U.S. bond or by bonds? I wouldn't quite say that. I would say that U.S. government debt is a form of money. It's a slightly different flavor of money with slightly different use cases, but there is no backing to this system. The backing of the system is the ability to exchange dollars for oil. And this system is crumbling even faster than I suspected two weeks ago because there's news that Saudi Arabia is in talks with China to price their oil in yuan for trade with China. Yeah. And my understanding is it's been going ongoing for about six years, but with uh, the Russia uh, market being closed off to the U.S. and the change in the geopolitical situation, it seems that the talks have resumed and China is willing to make quite a deal. And I want to back up just a moment. So with the U.S. dollar became the exclusive way to buy and sell oil. And that deal that took place was a sweetheart deal between the U.S. and the Saudis. And the Saudis in exchange got access to military uh, resources, which they still enjoy today. But what I didn't realize until after last week's episode is that little arrangement was completely secret for like 20 or 30 years. And it only came out you know, about 10, 10 year plus years ago that that was the arrangement. And I can't, when you think about how critical the U.S. dollar is to the world economy and how critical that arrangement between the U.S. and the Saudis is, I, I can't imagine that was kept secret at all. It just, it, it boggles my mind. And I, now, I live in a world now where it's, it's a known fact, but for most of my life growing up, that was actually not a known fact. And I just realized it last week, mind blown. Right. And you would have been labeled a conspiracy theorist to talk about it, but it was in fact the state of the world. And most of that deal was observable. You could see the U.S. Uh, uh, OPEC pricing oil in dollars, and you could see the U.S. selling lots of weapons to Saudi Arabia. On the regular. Every president does it. Yeah. But what you didn't see was that Saudi Arabia rolled their current account surplus. Basically, they exported a lot of oil, so they got tons and tons of dollars, more than they could ever spend in a single year. And they would roll that into U.S. treasuries. Yeah, that's the big thing, right? Because that, that continues demand for treasuries. Yes, and that makes it possible for the U.S. to run massive deficits that, fuels, that, well, that fueled the largest military buildup in human history, which is the United States. Well, it fueled the military. It fueled all kinds of expansion. But it also it allowed, for, it allowed for printing of money that made it into the markets that just created all kinds of explosions in assets and in company valuations and real estate prices. Like, I do not know if it is possible to understate the significance of this arrangement and how the U.S. has benefited for the last 40 years, right? Like, I just don't think you can understate it or overstate it. At the same time, when we say the U.S., the U.S. is not monolithic. So the entities in the U.S. that benefited from this arrangement are basically the federal government, foreign policy, and U.S. corporates. Because this arrangement helped develop American financial markets. It, it essentially financialized America's economy. And the obvious losers in this arrangement are 90% of Americans who don't own stocks and who also probably don't work in manufacturing anymore because those jobs had to be moved overseas indirectly because of the way that this arrangement makes the U.S. dollar very valuable and therefore American 
labor, very expensive, relatively speaking, compared to any other labor in the world. So what's changed now? Because Peter Schiff has been making a career for 20 years proclaiming that this was going to happen and go buy gold. So why all of a sudden are we talking about it? What's made it more real? What shift has happened? Peter Schiff. I shouldn't have even said his name, really, because his whole thing is he just grifts on whatever is popular. So like now he's he's stopped tweeting about Bitcoin and he's tweeting about Ukraine, which is going very poorly for him as well, because he's just as uninformed about that as he is about Bitcoin. He, he really is a troll, and he has a very unfortunate record with his customers' finances and the businesses he's been involved in, some of whom have been closed by treasury investigations. So he doesn't seem like someone I'd particularly... Yeah. There's a hilarious interview of him floating around with a CBS interview. But why, why all of a sudden has something that folks like him have been saying for, for a while... Uh, what's changed? What's real now? Is, 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 it, is it one thing in particular, or is your premise, it's this conversation that Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, uh, probably India are having, having about uh, what currency to buy oil with, but do you think it's just that alone? Just, just that enough? Or is it a foregone conclusion because of also this, the, the seizure of Russia's uh, reserve currencies or the blocking of Russia's reserve currencies. Like, is that the shift too? Like, help me understand here because I can, I can see the problem and I can see how big of a deal it is, but I don't fully understand what's shifted. So it's incredibly complicated and you're right that it's hard to sort of grasp what's happened fully. And so I think that there are a couple of things. First, people like Schiff have been wrong for 40 years about the fall of the dollar. Why is that? Well, it's because they don't really understand the mechanism that supports the dollar. And the mechanism was the petrodollar system. And up until Lynn Alden and Alex Gladstein wrote brilliant articles about it, frankly, I didn't really understand it either. So it's very complicated, but it's only recently been understood, and it's underpinned demand for dollars globally. So that has kept, that's kept demand up with the increasing supply, until I would imagine COVID, where printing just went nuts. So another thing that's been happening is that a U.S. dollar-based system made sense in 1945 because the U.S. was something like 60% of the global economy. But as other countries have developed, mainly China, India, eventually Africa too, will accelerate this trend, the U.S. is an increasingly small share of the global economy. The same thing happened to Britain at the end of their empire. They had a global reserve currency, which was still in circulation in the 1950s, but they had shrunk as, a, as an economy relative to the rest of the world. And so they simply didn't have the ability to produce enough British pounds to fill the world with pounds to make it a useful medium of exchange. And that's also happening to the dollar, and that's been happening for the past 20 years. Hmm. So on the one hand, you have... This energy arrangement, which is completely arbitrary, driving demand for dollars. On the other hand, you have a world sort of outgrowing the capacity for dollars to fuel the world economy. And then on the other hand, you have the U.S. basically weaponizing the dollar system against nations like Iran and now Russia. And the thing is, because of the technological underpinnings 
of the legacy financial system that the dollar system runs on, you do have the ability to censor people. It is permissioned. And so this system worked because no one had done it, because it wasn't something you had to worry about. But once it's been done, now you have to think every time you make a transaction, is this one going to get through? Is this going to be censored? So the U.S. has actually been breaking the dollar system with sanctions for a decade now. But by attacking another central bank, they're changing the game theory for every central bank. And that means that central banks and nations need to diversify out of U.S. treasuries. Right, because they don't want what happened to Russia to happen to them. Although you got to figure some of them must suspect it's less likely, but others might suspect it's more likely and have to be doing that math now. And, and what do they replace those dollars with? First of all, just think of nuclear weapons. After World War II, the U.S. had nuclear weapons and was friends with Europe, right? Yet the French, they developed nuclear weapons too. Everyone wanted nuclear weapons, even the U.S.'s allies. Hmm. So what's, why, do, why, did they, why did they want that? The answer is because you need to have insurance. Even in the 1960s, the French didn't really trust the Americans. So now that America has deployed the financial equivalent of a nuclear weapon against the foreign exchange reserves of the Russian central bank, which, by the way, were mainly in euros, you know, euros are part of the dollar system. So it means that all fiat currencies are a liability if you're a nation state now. So that, does that mean Bitcoin may play a role here? Is it just sort of a game theory? If one of them does it with Bitcoin, then another might, might uh, also use a little bit of Bitcoin? I would imagine it's a basket of things you would replace the dollar with, right? Not just one thing. Right. It's probably going to be a basket of commodities. Like, I think gold will be a part of it. Maybe other strategically important commodities will be a part of it. And eventually Bitcoin will too. And the thing is, Bitcoin is technologically the best reserve asset because it has no non-monetary purpose. It has no purpose other than money. And so once you try it as money, it's like a drug. You'll never go back. I've never met someone who got into Bitcoin, got their own wallet, and then were like, you know what? Not for me. It's a slippery slope for individuals and for institutions. We're at the beginning of a new monetary era, and it won't necessarily change very quickly because these are big institutions with big balance sheets. But they are going to need to reallocate and change their portfolio. And they're going to move into things other than currencies. And eventually, Bitcoin will be part of that. That'll be fascinating to watch. Maybe El Salvador has already started to kick that off a little bit. But, you know, you got to see. Um, I, I, have a, I have a sense there's going to be more news on that front in about a month or two. And another interesting thing about the petrodollar system is that Saudi Arabia is talking with China partially because it feels that the U.S. isn't filling its security relationship with Saudi Arabia. The Saudis have been committing a very violent and probably senseless war in Yemen for some time, dropping a lot of expensive American-made weapons on a lot of very poor people. And we've been parking boats out there with providing support, air cover, that kind of stuff. But apparently American politics is too soft and sentimental for the Saudis, and they feel like they've been kind of criticized for dropping bombs on a lot of poor people and families. It's like once people find out that you're bombing a civilian government to install a puppet government, it's like they don't like that. 
it's almost as if the Saudis have a similar structure of government to other aggressive dictatorships. Yeah, almost, huh? This shift will be so costly for the United States, but if it means maybe we're not financing the Saudis with dollars, I guess we're not going to stop buying oil, though. So there, there's always going to be oil sales. But perhaps after a decade, you know, after this transition has taken place, maybe we won't have to be such bad buddies with such poor fellows. We can only hope. And I'd also like to emphasize that what we're saying is not fringe. We're echoing sentiments shared by the people involved with the Iranian sanctions in 2014. There's a link in the notes to one of the, one of the Obama administration officials who deployed those sanctions. And they basically make clear that sanctions are a very dangerous tool and must be used well. And that's all I need to hear, because I know that we're not going to have good politics for a long time. And so if we have bad politics and we have more sanctions, which seems likely, then these trends we're discussing must accelerate, in my opinion. Hmm. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. We have been watching an accelerated use of sanctions during the Trump presidency, almost as a form of overcompensating. Trump just signed any sanctions that anybody could dream up. I mean, we layered on a ton of sanctions. Then now Biden has layered on even even more drastic sanctions. I never really thought about it, but you're right. Really, since Obama, it's been an upwards trend. And, you know, the thing about that original criticism in 2019, the main criticism was is that our system is not functional enough to properly implement these sanctions to cover all of the bases. So we just end up creating more dysfunction. And, and, and that there's really very little evidence that these sanctions end up accomplishing what we're looking for, but clear evidence that they devalue the use of the dollar. They, they simply make it harder and harder to use the dollar. They simply make it less and less attractive to use the dollar. That is for sure. And the effectiveness of the sanctions, I think, could be debated. Perhaps they are worth it. But people that are smarter than me, that get paid to think about this stuff, seem to argue that they don't often seem very effective. I take them at their word. There's incredible collateral damage because when you weaponize the financial system, you indirectly harm everyone who uses that financial system. For example, and this is partially due to sanctions, partially due to uh, trade in Ukraine being disrupted, but there is food shortages throughout the Middle East. There's a lot of pressure on the price of bread in Egypt, which is subsidized. And so if, if they can't subsidize cheap bread, there's going to be hunger and political strife there. Lebanon, their granaries were destroyed in that port explosion a year ago. And so they can only keep one month of grain for the entire country in reserve. And they're getting hit with high grain prices because Ukraine's a massive grain exporter, as is Russia. Yeah, the cost of wheat has skyrocketed. Ah, there's a lot of something I've been thinking a lot about recently is with what's happening right now with cryptocurrency, with world politics, conflict, etc. There's so many second and third order effects that I think are particularly hard for a lot of people to even understand because it, it requires such a massive depth of context. Like this, this conflict in Ukraine, I think a lot of people have struggled to really understand why it's happening. They can ascribe, oh, Putin's gone mad. He's a madman. But 
they don't really understand what's happening. They don't really understand the, the second order effects of the prices of commodities like wheat going way up and how you have situations in Lebanon where there's an extreme demand right now and how that can also drive the price up. And then you look at the supply chain where only 10% of shipments by boat are uh, delivered on time through the LA port, which is like a massive port for the United States. It used to be 90% before the pandemic and now it is 10%. And all of those contribute to just racking up all of these issues while we have 40-year high inflation, while all of that's happening. And we have 40-year high inflation, and the official numbers, if you did the math as it was calculated in the 80s, our inflation would be double what the official U.S. number is, what the CPI is. If you took out all the substitutions they do, like so when the price of a steak goes up, they assume that you buy a, p a cheaper piece of meat. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things there. There's a basically the... The inflation basket for the U.S. has gotten really crazy if you look at it. There's no, there's no steak in there. Like, like there's only soy. And so it really doesn't represent anyone's consumption because I, I just don't think that many Americans. Right. The one that got me is, so say you buy a car and then five years later you buy a new car and that new car is $25,000 more expensive. Well, they'll look at the technology difference and they'll say, yes, but there was about eight grand worth of new tech. So we'll take that eight grand off the price of the car. So you see, inflation isn't that bad because we just took eight grand out of the price. And they're playing games like that with every kind of market from housing to cars to food. And that's how they now arrive at the CPI. And if you just peeled that stuff off and just looked at the increase of real estate and food and cars and gas and things that everyday Americans have to buy, it's double 7.9, no doubt about it. It's, it's definitely, in my opinion, and this is just what do I know, it's definitely 15 to 20%. It's not a coincidence that this high inflation happens at the same time with all of these other problems because they're all interrelated. And I think what you're getting at is that the world is this huge complex machine. And where Bitcoin fits into this is Bitcoin is actually a very simple machine. And it can't, no one can put their finger on it to, to shift uh, to push that machine in one direction or another, it just sort of naturally finds equilibria. And that's why the price is volatile. But in terms of what it does, Bitcoin is incredibly consistent. It produces a new block of transactions every 10 minutes. It has 99.999% uptime. It has better uptime than AWS. And this is a project that a bunch of, you know, kooks are running on their computers at home. Yeah, I don't think so. This is a serious undertaking. And it's arriving just at the right time. It truly, that's why you see this meme that Bitcoin fixes this, which is starting to get a little obnoxious, but it truly does solve some of these problems. And that's why I find it so attractive. That's why I think it's so incredible that all of these macroeconomic events are happening when Bitcoin has, is reaching a certain network effect. I just saw another, uh, people love to post these kind of statistics all the time. But somebody just recently did the numbers once again, and the numbers, according to them, and I don't have any references, I'm sorry, but Bitcoin adoption trend is about where the internet was in 1997 right now. And if you think about it in that terms, it's incredible that this is coming along right at the moment we need something like this when there's so much opportunity ahead. It makes sense. Humans create the solutions for the problems they're creating. There's this weird circularity about technological and even thought development. There's a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that I read a long time ago, and it talks about how solutions sort of enter the human zeitgeist and, and are often discovered simultaneously in different places around the world. I'm not surprised that we were breaking money 
just at the time that Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin. It it makes sense to me. And as as pretty much everybody knows, there's many references. Satoshi's made references to the financial collapse in 2018 and the bailout of the financial institutions. So it was obviously part of the thinking. And the technology to to make Bitcoin existed in the 90s, but perhaps there wasn't quite enough internet adoption. Perhaps there wasn't quite enough financial friction that would have made anyone want to use it. And so it sort of arrives just at this moment when people, mainly libertarians, are just getting frustrated enough with the financial system to try something new. And that's sort of the subject of Arthur Hayes' latest blog post. Hi there, Arthur. I'm reading your post. Uh, I think you must be a listener because we're talking about all the same points. So give us a call. Love to have you as a guest. Arthur is the co-founder of BitMEX, the Bitcoin Mercantile Exchange. Mm -hmm. Okay. And BitMEX was one of the original Bitcoin casinos. I mean, oh my gosh. Most Bitcoiners have donated Bitcoins at BitMEX so that Arthur Hayes can be a billionaire today. <laughs> it hurts. It's, it's, it stings because it's true. Because on BitMEX, you could deposit Bitcoin and then trade with just 100x leverage, perpetual futures swaps, all sorts of wild financial derivatives. And of course, Arthur comes from the traditional financial system. He was a, I think, originally a Deutsche Bank trader in Hong Kong. And then he discovered Bitcoin and went all in on BitMEX and the rest is history. But Arthur is, in my view, one of the most open sort of financial trading geniuses. And I don't really praise anybody, but I think his articles are so insightful. And what's funny about them is he writes them as if he's 13 years old. I mean, he just has all these kooky internet references. He loves the uh, Pepe the Frog meme. <laughs> There's always a Pepe picture. It is a fun read. I have to say, it manages to hold my attention all the way through. I think that for our older, our older listeners who are used to maybe more um, traditional publications, Arthur may read as sort of a joke. Unfortunately or fortunately, his insights are spot on. And he sees the end of the dollar system. The nail in that coffin was the central bank freezing of Russian reserves. So for the past, I think, two or three years, his, the, what he's been saying is that his portfolio strategy is long Bitcoin, long volatility. And then he also got in, involved with the Web3 sort of pump and dump. He was a big fan of Web3 and all these silly tokens because his, his reasoning was, hey, market says risk on. What's the riskiest thing? Web3. I'll buy that for a little while. But he's dumped all of that. And now he's focusing on basically gold and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. He went from long Bitcoin, long volatility, yeah, which is not a strategy most normal humans can buy because buying volatility, it's a bit uh, esoteric and expensive. You got to be, you got to be coming in with some money. <laughs> yeah. According to uh, Arthur, not even billionaires can buy volatility like he can. It's because he knows a guy. It's good to know people in high places, I guess. Well, I mean, someone's going to get wise because he's always bragging about how the volatility he buys is mispriced. So someone's going to figure that out eventually. Well, you know what? It does make for an entertaining read. I mean, I guess when you have a billion dollars. You might be a little untouchable, actually. You just yeah. you love the lulls. But I think he may actually have to uh, spend some time in jail because Bitfinex did not have anti-money laundering systems in place. Their argument was, 
we don't touch the dollar financial system. We just use Bitcoin, so don't regulate us. And the Treasury Department disagreed. Who would have saw that coming? So his core point, though, is essentially what you've been touching on, is that a tipping point has been reached, and it it is the end of the petrodollar. And uh, funny, it really does read like what you were talking about. He talks a lot about the stuff that changed in 1971. His core recommendation, and this is him, not us, though he does have that not financial advice disclaimer on here, is back up the truck, you know, get out the front end loader and scoop up as much gold and Bitcoin as he can. That's Arthur Hayes. That's apparently what he is doing, according to his blog, with a picture of a green frogman on it. Just a little levity at the end of the death of the petrodollar seg- segment. And by the way, ending the US dollar global reserve currency system is, in my opinion, great because this system was not good for American workers. It's not good for every other country in the world because it suppresses the price of energy uh, for them. So they can't consume as much energy as they want. And you might say, well, that's good because burning fossil fuels is bad. Well, sure, carbon in the atmosphere is, is bad. At the same time, what's worse is, I don't know, living in Germany and having your electric price go up 400% in like three months, and now it's like, can you even heat your house? That really sucks. But there's also quite a bit of data that shows that when access to energy becomes very expensive, people start to burn very unclean things because they can get their hands on it cheaply. And so you actually want to talk about environmental impact. It's it's funny, when you when you make energy hard to reach for people, there's a dramatic increase in the environmental impact of that region because of what they turn to. Oh, right. Burning plastic, burning garbage. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. All kinds of gross things. It's kind of unfortunate. But this is, some, this is one of the things that would begin to transition as the system changes. Like What we are about to watch unfold is going to be history in the making. We're, we're really about to witness something massive. And in a, in a way... I guess, like, what else can we do but sit back and pop the popcorn and just brace for it? You know, try to try to take whatever actions you think you can to, to maybe it's maybe it's the golden Bitcoin approach. Maybe it's, you know, it's plant a garden. You know, there's a lot of things, but just sit back and watch it and just kind of get ready because it's going to be history, baby. Right. And I think it's important to let go of our preconceived notions about how the world should be and try to look at what is. And this seems to be unfolding. And for me, I think it's a really great opportunity because when have you ever had the opportunity to buy an option on change? Bitcoin represents a completely new, decentralized, more flat financial system, and individuals can just go and buy this today. That's amazing to me. What I think is missed is that even though setting up your own Bitcoin node and interacting with it at a very basic level today, it requires some technical skill. It's not exactly easy. At the same time, what you're doing is analogous to the Federal Reserve making a transfer to another central bank. That is the level of security and finality of this transaction. And you can literally do that if you can watch a guide on YouTube. Exactly. This is mind-blowing. It's not only access to a monetary system that's decentralized and democratized, but it just requires learning to get there. 
You don't have to be a multimillionaire that can buy into a hedge fund. You don't have to have connections to a bank to get access to this. You don't even have to go buy shovels and find a mine and dig. You just have to be able to consume the information, take things in, and then proceed. And it's just a remarkable opportunity. Even, even if 10% of Bitcoin's potential is realized, it's just an unbelievable opportunity. Talk about knowledge economy. Yeah. Which brings us to the bad news, because our favorite U.S. senator seems hell-bent on destroying the knowledge economy, in my opinion. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Even after her really bad display in that Senate hearing that I talked about that she just sort of got trounced online for, she has an anti-crypto bill that's sort of cloaked as an anti-Russia bill that's just vague enough that the implications of it could be pretty devastating. Not to mention, it could try to create artificial divides in the crypto world that are not inherent to the technology, so it would be policy being applied to something that doesn't actually support it. And that always leads to disaster as well. But um, it just doesn't seem like she's going to stop. It's almost on a weekly basis. Senator Warren is doing something in this regard. And frankly, I think it's even worse than that, because this bill specifically mentions open source contributors as potentially liable for what people do with their software. This is the equivalent of saying, if you describe a crime with words and then someone commits a crime, you're going to jail with them. This is so absolutely insane to me. It could have so many unforeseen negative consequences that I just view this bill, even as a draft, to be so incredibly irresponsible and reckless and, frankly, ignorant. I agree with all of that. And I think the ramifications for open source are pretty significant because it is already a fact that there are nation states that we consider hostile towards the West that are using Linux and using FreeBSD and using free software. And to hold a developer like Linus Torvalds responsible for what Russia does with the Linux kernel is ridiculous. Just as we don't hold a gold miner responsible for what somebody does with that gold, it's just also just, just absurd. And it's a veiled attempt to just lay down a policy level control on something before it gets wider adoption. I think that's the goal here. I think that's Senator Warden, Warren's basic approach is she recognizes the crypto market is small. She knows the liquidity problem is there. You couldn't, you know, oligarchs couldn't really use it for avoiding sanctions because she knows the liquidity mark, the liquidity is small. She wants to get this nailed down before it's a $10 trillion market. That's her thinking. And the U.S. Treasury told Senator Warren, Bitcoin isn't going to mess with sanctions yet. And she still wants to go after it. Even Jerome Powell said that in testimony. The, 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 the Fed chairman said that, that no, it doesn't seem like it's a, a significant use for sanctions avoidance. We haven't seen that yet. You think he might know, sort of his job. But they're going to keep trying, right? This is, this is their moment of opportunity to strike. And it's likely not just going to be one U.S. senator. And this is something that's probably going to happen from multiple countries. It's probably going to start happening on a more regular basis. And so the question is, is the momentum of the Bitcoin network and technology faster than the momentum of these regulations. Yes. I think so too. It's not like the government is, at least in the United States, is a monolithic entity. You have anti-crypto senators and representatives like Senator Warren and, and Representative Brad Sherman from California, who I think is getting primaried right now. So see how that goes. 
But then you also have the Wyoming Senator Loomis, who is very pro-crypto and actually wants to abolish capital gains taxes on small crypto transactions to make it easier to experiment with and to see if there are payment system applications. That sounds really great. Yeah. Um, seems like the number's the big point of dispute. She's proposed $600, but she expects it's actually going to get lowered. But I like the idea because it would enable you to use cryptocurrency for day-to-day transactions like at a restaurant or a coffee shop or at the gas station, et cetera. And perhaps people would like to do that. You know, you got to think, Dad, if, if the macroeconomic story that we've been talking about plays out, there's going to be a natural slide by the citizens of, of the United States to look for escape hatches, to look for inflation hedges, to look for things outside the system. And so it's going to become politically dangerous as time goes on to be against Bitcoin because more and more of their constituents are going to be pro-Bitcoin. And one of the funny things is, is if you look at some of the largest holders, if you break it down in the United States by state, the top three, and I think Washington is somewhere in there, the top three are progressive states. They're blue states. So this isn't, it's, it's, when you look at constituents, it's actually going to be it's going to be a bit of a political problem for them if they don't figure this out pretty quick. I think she sees a small window of time. I don't know if that's the same situation in other countries, but I find that to be it's a fascinating situation that's brewing. Like she's probably got what two, three years, maybe if that long, before people realize how cooked the dollar is. Like that she can front run she can front run people's realization for only so long, right? And then eventually the general public's going to realize, oh crap, things have really changed. I need a solution. I mean, members of my family already asking me about it that didn't even talk to me about Bitcoin a couple of years ago. We had a listener write in who needs Bitcoin right now, and it's solving some serious problems for them. So we'll get to that at the end and make some recommendations that might be helpful to other people too. But I think that the pattern is sort of like, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they join you. So I think we're moving from the laughing at Bitcoin to the fighting Bitcoin stage. And I see that as incredibly positive overall because it's a sign of adoption. It's a sign that it's useful. And what I would say to people who are worried about being targeted is this is why we need to care about privacy. This is why we need to hold our own keys, hold the Bitcoin yourself on your own wallet, hopefully run your own node for some additional privacy because this system gives people the ability to be their own central bank, but it doesn't make you immune to the world outside. So we have to be reasonable in what we can expect from Bitcoin and how we, how we use it and how we expose ourselves to these systems. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. Docker. Kubernetes, Swarm, Raspberry Pis. These words, they mean something, and they mean that you can spend hours configuring computers, running services, hiding from your problems. It's so great. Just try it. If you want to, you can check it out at selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app. Nice. Yes, self-sovereign data. Why not? And remember, we love your feedback, your ideas, your questions. You can get in touch at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or hit us up on Twitter at BitcoinDadPod. I was chatting with a listener. It was actually on Telegram. Uh Uh-oh. 
<laughs> you don't want it. You don't want any OPSEC leak. <laughs> yeah. So there's a secret Telegram account. Our listener was chatting with is in Moscow, and this person was very concerned about being able to save money because inflation is so high, and also because people are losing access to their bank accounts. Yeah, that's sad. This listener was telling me that a lot of people in Russia actually have a U.S. dollar bank account. So you use rubles for all your payments, but you can apply and get a U.S. dollar bank account. It's like a savings account. And you can kind of sell your rubles into your U.S. dollar bank account and then sell your dollars into rubles when you exit it. The thing is, the Russian government is running so short on foreign exchange that it's confiscating some of these accounts. And even if you can still access these U.S. dollars, the official rate might be 120 rubles to the dollar, but you'll only be able to sell your dollars for, say, 92. So you're getting only two-thirds of the value of these dollars. And the reason is because banks are a permissioned, fully custodial system. So the bank can do whatever the heck it thinks it can get away with. Whatever it thinks it needs to, right? It needs to comply with the the law. And if the law is to rip off its customers, it's going to do that. Also, they're limiting the total amount too. So not only are you getting less, but you can't take out more than like a certain amount, which is probably like 10,000 or something. I can't remember, but there's all kinds of limits that can be layered in. Right. And talking to this listener, it was clear that time was of the essence because every day inflation is sort of wrecking your savings if you live in Russia. And so I advised them to move fast. And what I suggested they do was to download the Samurai Wallet app on their Android phone. Now, Android phones are probably the most popular cell phones outside of the United States, maybe even the, in, in the United States too. And the Samurai Bitcoin wallet is a really solid mobile phone-based wallet. It interacts with a pre-configured node run by the Samurai team, which, you know, that's not great for your privacy, but the Samurai team seem pretty privacy-centric. So if you're going to trust someone with your data, Samurai team seems pretty okay. It's hard to imagine the IRS sending them a subpoena letter. I don't know where they'd send it. My, my suspicion is that they run their servers in a uh, sort of on-the-DL hosting facility. You can buy VPS hosting in Bitcoin. So I think they're doing something like that. Yeah, they do seem like the group that is probably taking it more seriously. Of course, the other major privacy wallet just added coin surveillance of their users. So we have to completely disrecommend Wasabi Wallet to our users until that development team sort of figures out what their values are. Surveilling your users breaks the privacy guarantees of the wallet. It's just a terrible idea. Samurai Wallet, though, seems like it should be a safe bet, and it'll do the seed key option so they can generate a seed key and save that off device in case they lose their device. They actually have to. Samurai Wallet requires that you back up the seed, and it tests you. So Samurai Wallet will not let you just click through the seed generation and not remember it. It will test you, and if you don't remember your seed, you'll have to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I've seen those. <laughs> and the thing about Samurai Wallet is that it has the option to use a privacy technology called CoinJoin, 
but you don't have to do it. You can just use it as a regular Bitcoin wallet and it'll work fine. Nice to have that option, actually, though, especially depending on your use case. More options, more better, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what about getting that Bitcoin? Because, like, say that bill from Senator Warren passed. This listener may not be able to ever spend that Bitcoin with an exchange outside of Russia. That's a really good point. I recommended that this listener check out a, an exchange called HODL HODL. And HODL HODL is not available to U.S. citizens. But if you're outside of the U.S., it has a sort of peer-to-peer -peer structure. So sellers of Bitcoin and buyers of Bitcoin post advertisements. And anyone can reply to an advertisement. People have ratings and, and reputation. But there are no, there's no requirement for identity. It's more about what your reviews are on the platform and how much Bitcoin or dollars or rubles you're, you can supply. Hmm, okay. That's, I mean, that helps. Having those, like we talked about earlier, having those reviews and ratings gives you at least some guidelines. Right. And the way it works is that the buyer and the seller they connect on the platform and then they chat via the platform's encrypted chat function. And then the, se the, the seller of Bitcoin sends some Bitcoin into a multi-sig controlled by HODL HODL. So the seller has one key, the buyer has one key, and then HODL HODL has the third key. And you need two of these parties to agree to release the Bitcoin. The seller of Bitcoin funds the multi-sig. And then the buyer makes payment in fiat currency, in, in rubles in the case of our listener. And when they pay, they click release, the release button on that wallet multi-sig. And then when the seller receives it, they click payment received. And then the multi-sig releases and sends the funds directly to the buyer's personal wallet. The reason that it happens in this escrow way on a platform is if there's a problem with the payment and there's a dispute, HODL HODL has a moderator or something who can jump in and look at your chat log and then say, okay, looks like so-and-so was right. They get their Bitcoin or they should have their money refunded or whatever. There's some security via this multi-sig and a potential moderator. But what's the trade-off? The trade-off is this is slower and harder to use and has less liquidity than a centralized exchange. At the same time, it's relatively private, and I've heard that it works great, and it is available to people in countries where you, d you cannot access a centralized cryptocurrency exchange right now where you have to register with your ID. Right, there's that. I mean, some people just don't have access. It really depends on your use case. If you're Michael Saylor, you don't care if every Bitcoin is attached to a name and an address. But if you're a listener in Russia, you may care. And so it's nice to have those options. So HODL HODL will have a link in the show notes. And then Samurai Wallet is the wallet that Dad recommended. And that also has the join market as well, right? So a potential option there for a little bit of security or privacy. Right. So Samurai Wallet has a coin join function called Whirlpool. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you could download that on a Linux desktop too, that component of it. The limitation of the mobile version Whirlpool is that you have to keep your phone on to continuously coin join those coins. But if you set up the Samurai Wallet Home Dojo, Samurai Dojo, it's a series of Docker containers that can be run on any computer, including a Windows computer. But you'll need about 700, 600 gigabytes of, of 
of uh, hard drive space, and I would say at least four CPU threads. Well, maybe two you could get away with. But yeah, the mobile app is lean and mean, but the desktop app might be for more a serious user, a more longer term user. It would be great for a user who listens to the self-hosted show. Heyo. I was thinking about running it myself, actually. And the dojo, I think, might be available on Umbral. So that's something I should probably look into. It is on Umbral. I'd actually be interested to see how they do that because I set it up once and tried to connect the dojo, which is running in Docker containers, with some actual host-level programs, a Bitcoin node and an Electrum server. And it wasn't super clean, but I've heard they've made improvements. Yeah, perhaps a future episode. We had that conversation. I haven't heard back yet. So hopefully things worked out for that listener. And Chris and I are really happy to be able to, you know, share our experience. And so if you have a pressing Bitcoin problem or just a casual question, go ahead and send it in. We love answering them. We also had a listener write in. And episode four was the title, so I guess while listening to episode four, thanks for making it that far. And the question is, what is Lightning and how does Chris play with it? Lightning is a peer-to-peer payment facilitator for the Bitcoin network. So you have the blockchain, and that's a traditional way to send funds on the Bitcoin network. Traditional. I, I love how it's just... That's the old school way. Right. It's old school. And then now there is a second layer. There is the Lightning Network. I kid only because I'm very, very excited about Lightning right now. So I probably have just been tossing it around without even defining what it is. So it's a series of nodes that interconnect through a series of channels, and then they can transact with each other. And so you could have, let's say, four or five nodes in a transaction, and each one of them is participating in this network and your payment is moving through these channels that have a bit of liquidity on each end of the channel to cover the transaction. What I think is really important to understand about Lightning and why the existence of Lightning demonstrates that Bitcoin is in a league of its own compared to any other altcoin project. Because the engineering in Bitcoin, when you understand it a little, is it's the difference between a 747 and a raft made of oil drums floating in the South Pacific. That's you, Ethereum. You're the raft. (laughs) Blockchains don't scale. Let me repeat that. Blockchains don't scale. Blockchains are what enables the decentralized nature of all cryptocurrency systems. And we're going to focus on Bitcoin because it's the only one that really works. So a blockchain is great for decentralization. It's great for security. It's great for consensus. With a blockchain and some incentives and technology around it, we can all agree about the global state of money. We can agree who has what Bitcoin, and it's a fair process. There are no disputes. Every coin is accounted for. No mistakes. It's It's basically infallible, but there are no free lunches. There's no magic in the world, just engineering trade-offs. And so the engineering trade-off to the Bitcoin blockchain is that, yeah, you can only produce one block every 10 minutes, and that block can have like, I don't know, somewhere between 1,900 and 2,400 transactions in it. Do the math, yeah, that's about six six seconds of transaction. Oh, it doesn't sound so good. So how do we scale that? Well, 
some altcoins have tried scaling it by making the blocks bigger, but doesn't work because it makes the network slower. It centralizes the network. We've talked about that. Right. And it's like, okay, if 10 million people are using your blockchain and you need a two megabyte block and now 20 million and you need a four megabyte block, like you're going to get to gigabyte blocks that don't even work before you get any sort of adoption. Lightning solves this by basically creating a layer on top of Bitcoin that doesn't put more data on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's like one transaction. It's a special type of Bitcoin transaction. It's, a, it's actually a two of two multisig. And the way it works is I'm going to send Chris a Lightning transaction. And so he and I, uh, we, I think we collaborate a little. Typically, you would generate an invoice. But there is, of course, the capacity for just sending money to an address as well. Right. Well, I, I need to know the address of your Lightning node. Yep. And then I can create a transaction that takes some of my Bitcoin, and it's, it's a Bitcoin transaction, and it's like I'm spending it. But what I'm actually doing is, I, is I'm putting it into a pipe that connects my node to Chris's node. And now we can send this Bitcoin back and forth forever. We can just keep on sending it back and forth. It's above the chain the entire time, the blockchain. You can't see any of this activity on the chain. We've taken all this data off the chain. We've scaled Bitcoin because we made one transaction on the main chain, and now we can make infinite transactions on this layer two lightning. That's really the special sauce right there. That's the magic. And it's even better because if Chris is connected to Sally and I want to send a payment to Sally, I can send the payment through my pipe to Chris and then Chris's pipe to Sally. And now Sally very popular. She's connected to 100 nodes, and now I can send payments to those 100 nodes. And those pipes are called channels in Lightning. Right. Basically, Lightning has a lot of caveats right now. It's still pretty early. It's not super easy to use. At the same time, what is here already could give Visa a run for its money. What's it going to be like in two years? Yeah. Amazing. Especially when user-friendly tooling is built on top of this, right? We have the protocol. Now we need more and more tooling, and that is actively being built out. There's so much good stuff already. Yes. So what I would say is Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain, when I send a Bitcoin transaction to Chris, that's like the central bank of the United States sending a transaction to the central bank of France. It's that level of finality, of security, except now we know that Bitcoin is better than central bank transactions because if you're a bad central bank, your transaction can be canceled anyway. So what is Lightning? Lightning is like Visa, except it's better than Visa because it's also trustless. Lightning transactions can fail, but you can never lose money. They're not going to be censored or seized or charged back. It still has those guarantees of Bitcoin, but it's got some trade-offs. It's slightly more complicated. And the other thing about Lightning that's amazing is that because Lightning uses Satoshis, the native unit of Bitcoin, I can send Chris a transaction for literally any amount from one one hundred millionth of a dollar to a million dollars. Yeah, and that whole network is growing at a rapid pace. And today, you know, we talk about what's complicated, right? Sure. So is the ACH network, but you don't have any, you don't have to bother with that. You don't have any interaction directly with the ACH network. You just initiate a transfer at your bank. You're not allowed to interact with that network. 
we're building a tool here that is better than Visa, better than the ACH. And the, the arguments against it are, oh, it's, it's too complicated. And I want to scream and say, Visa is complicated, but you're not allowed to see it. This is like we're building Visa. It's better. And again, if you can watch a YouTube video, you can literally run this on your home computer. And you could see like uh, as a podcast network, if every one of our hosts had a lightning node and I opened up a channel to them and they had a channel to me, wouldn't that be a fantastic way to pay contractors and staff is through these channels? Just nobody else involved from my node to their node. It's just a thing of beauty. And we can do clever things. And sorry, listener, I hope we're not getting too excited and moving too fast here. But when you can send essentially free payments of any denomination, you can do interesting things where imagine if I had eventually one day we might get a sponsor, another sponsor for this show. And imagine if we just they just charged us by the the second of the ad read. So the rate is a hundred Satoshis a second for an ad read. So I would just say, here I'm talking about the sponsor's content. And if I did 10 seconds that episode, I would just get 10 seconds of payment. Very interesting things can be done here. This is sort of a whole new level in payments that's being unlocked that's never been available before this technology. Yeah. And it really is the back end plumbing. It is not necessarily something you'll have to think about when you see lightning implemented in consumer facing applications they don't even make it obvious you're using it it's it's just an implementation detail right and i think that most people in the world will use lightning within 10 years but they won't know it's lightning because it's going to you're going to just rip out the traditional plumbing of the financial system and you're going to put Lightning and other technologies based on Bitcoin in there, and no one's going to even notice. Yeah, it'll be a back-end app update for the point-of-sale device. <laughs> yeah. And, and the nice thing is, if you want to get all nerdy, you can. And it is within the realm of someone like myself who has a technology background but really doesn't have a financial background. And I was able to get it set up and running, and it has given me a bit of self-sovereign uh, money for my business. Like it I had, I had a real big moment where I realized when people were boosting the Jupiter Broadcasting shows, that value was arriving at a box that's in my office. It's almost like I have a storefront with a, a cash register. And when somebody comes and buys a good, that, that cash is actually in my, on my premises. It's really it's empowering in that way. But we're buying goods over the internet. And so your storefront that could have serviced maybe 100 people a day your storefront is now looking out on the entire internet-connected human race. Think of the possibilities. We're going to be able to do business with people all over the world. Right. We haven't all had one currency. We haven't all had access to one payment network, a worldwide payment network that anyone can participate in. To be frank, this is revolutionary in a good way. And obviously, they're going to be losers in this system. Let's just quickly pour out a small tier for them, play the world's smallest violin. I'm sorry, Visa and MasterCard. Your monopoly over consumer payments and sitting in the middle of all those transactions and charging back everyone and taking 2%, I'm sorry, that's going to go away. You know who I'm not going to feel bad about seeing fade away? Western Union. Oh, and they're already fading so fast. Talk about 
in a world where you can send each other value and payments over the Lightning Network or just over a blockchain, they're just pointless. Got to be frank. Today, if you're sending money between countries and you're using Western Union instead of Bitcoin, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. I mean, they've just... Western Union's made a business on taking advantage of people. <laughs> That's really what they're... They've made, a, they've made a business on being a middleman that, take, that takes fees from people when they're trying to help family and friends overseas. That's what their business is. It's amazing because on those smaller value transfers where people are sending 100, 200 bucks, they might end up paying 10 to 20%. I've heard even 40% in fees. That is so crazy. And that's actually why, or one of the stated reasons that El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as a national currency, because the idea was, if people can send money home using Bitcoin and Lightning, we're going to boost GDP by 40% because we're just not going to be paying these remittance fees to Western Union. And their GDP is up. I think they're doing well, actually. I keep, I keep watching and worrying that the numbers are going to, we're going to get a report and the numbers are bad. Because in the early days of Linux, there was, there was a German state that attempted to go all free software, all Linux, really early, about 10 years before anybody else did. And it went horrible. And they spent 10 years digging their way out of that hole. Ouch. Bad PR. Unfortunately, I think El Salvador was a little early. And they, they bought the top on that last bull market. So they're underwater in their Bitcoin position. So if they, I guess they can join the rest of us then. <laughs> yeah. Them and, them and well, there was some stat that like a huge percentage of people came into the crypto market in 2021. And they basically bought at any point in 2021 practically at the top. Yeah, that's how humans work. Humans buy the tops and sell the bottoms. And if you're a human, that's probably what you're going to do. Just relax. Don't be hard on yourself. And remember, everyone who bought the top in 2018, 20, or 17, $20,000, they thought they were idiots until 2021. I distinctly remember getting in a fight with my wife at the time for being ridiculous I spent $200 to acquire two Bitcoins, and it was outrageous. I was willing to spend $200 for two Bitcoins. <laughs> so, it, you know, you hold on long enough, and your perspective changes. Though I think maybe you should let go of that fight. Well, it's still bitter. I'm still bitter about it. I'll tell you what. The Bitcoin thing, you know, it could be a contentious thing in a relationship. And I think that my, my lesson, if I were to pass a lesson on from that, is have some compassion. Ex- experience, explain, and have some compassion. But uh, Also, perhaps stick to your convictions if you believe in the fundamentals strongly enough. I think that getting into Bitcoin is sort of like getting into Linux. You don't want to tell your significant other about it too often. Just let them tolerate you in your room doing some odd thing. Remind them that this is a a healthy hobby. You're not going outside and getting into trouble. You're doing it. In your living room. And truth is, you know, it may become self-explanatory in a couple of years. It may not need very much convincing. Right. Well, I think that we're seeing the beginnings of currency collapse and monetary transition. And so these are the, this is the environment where people get Bitcoin really, really fast. That listener who wrote in uh, from Moscow who needed Bitcoin now because the value in their bank account was just evaporating. This person had never even thought about using Bitcoin in, until a couple of days before we talked. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I've 
this is a funny this is a funny thing to say, but I've I've realized that there's a certain bit of financial privilege that a lot of us, at least in the West, have enjoyed for a long time, and obviously those in Russia too, and that can change quickly. And sometimes it changes slowly, and I think that's what we're seeing here in the States, although it's beginning to accelerate, and sometimes it can change in a matter of days. And right now, we don't, have, like, individually, if you live in the United States, maybe there's not a there's not a big demand for you to use Bitcoin on a daily basis or to own Bitcoin necessarily, right? I would disagree. Maybe it's less immediate. Yeah, yeah. But if you were saving for a house any time in the last decade, you should have been holding Bitcoin. Yeah, totally. Oh, for sure. No, I, I just think that it's like the, for some people, the situation isn't dire enough to make them kind of alter their perspective and consider it. Because it takes some effort to learn about something new, especially something that seems so alien. And we have the cult, the religion of the stock market in the US. So I feel like there is sort of an I maybe an assumption in the United States that, well, you've got the stock market. What else do you need for saving? <laughs> and I think that there are probably some limitations to the stock market. And we're also, we got the first Federal Reserve 25 basis point rate hike. Was it yesterday? Uh, Wednesday? Wednesday. Somewhere in there, but recently. First time in a long time. We're going to see what tiny rises in interest rates do to the stock market. And I don't think it'll be too pretty. Obviously, let's not get focused on price because at the end of the day, the price of Bitcoin is important because it needs to sort of act as a store of value to be good money. But we don't know what these numbers will do in the short term and the world is very chaotic. So we have to have some convictions about how the world works and what the underlying technology is. And you can hear from this episode that Chris and I have concluded that the trends are very positive in the direction towards Bitcoin and very negative in the direction towards traditional U.S. dollars. And this has been episode five of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, March 18th, 2022. Thanks for listening. I've been your Bitcoin Dad. And I've been Chris. See you next time.